MNK Talk YA now presents One Dark Throne Part 2 of the Three Dark Queens series by Kendare Blake. everyone to M&K Talk YA. I'm Katie Bradford. And I'm Marissa Snyder. And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast. And this week we finished the second book in the Three Dark Crown series, which is called One Dark Throne by Kendare Blake. Yeah, and we had a few casualties this <laughs> yeah. half of the book, all of them very unexpected for me at least. Well, and I was the one who was <laughs> predicting that we'd lose one of the queens and they're like the only people who haven't died. <laughs> No, I know it's like the exact opposite of what you thought was gonna happen. <laughs> I was like, not everyone can live. One of these queens has to die. Nope, the queens will keep coming back to life, but yep. all their friends will die. <laughs> oh man. Okay, so let's talk about where we left off from last week. Everyone thought Arsenault was dead because Catherine shot her with a poisoned arrow. <laughs> Which does usually kill someone, especially if they're not secretly a poisoner. In normal circumstances, yes. So Jules saved her. Everyone thought she was dead because they didn't know that she could survive the poison. Brings her to the Black Cottage where they were raised for the first six years, was it? Yeah. The queens were raised, and Jules' aunt is living there. We got to meet Aunt Kara finally. Yeah. What did you think of her compared to, or like, how did she live up to what you expected or not? I liked her a lot, especially like when compared to Madrigal, who just seems very selfish and self-centered. And like we were joking about this last week about how she wants to like make everything about her. Yeah. And then I think her sister was just so different how she kind of like took this banishment in stride and kind of like has been suffering in silence for Mm -hmm. a while. And she's really like made a home out of her banishment and she it it doesn't seem like she's harboring a lot of resentment I mean maybe she is but she's really like made the most of a bad circumstance and has been not complaining about it at all which I think is like super strong I am so curious like if I could see a side short story or a short story about a side character I think I'd want to see them growing up the magical and Kara like younger or before she got sent away because I'm so curious too I feel like from Madrigal's side there's some kind of this like competitiveness almost but Mm -hmm. I don't really understand where it's coming from if that makes sense I don't know either because she always talks about how you know her perfect sister had everything Mm -hmm. but that but she's been banished like she's yeah her her life kind of sucks yeah (laughs) yeah so I'm not quite sure what Magical is jealous of. <laughs> yeah, and Kara seems so nice. Like, I can't imagine her, like, holding it over Magical's head or, like, taking something from her. So I'm just, I'm curious how they ended up so different. And it, I think that would be one of the more interesting, like, side character background stories that I'd want to see. Totally, because even when Magical tells Kara, like, I'm seeing Matthew now and I'm carrying his child, like, yeah, Kara is just kind of, like, resigned to it. She's like, I I can't hold this against you. Like, I wasn't there. Like, I, I I, had to leave. And I, you know, I can't, I can't expect him to be faithful to me when I'm not there. So she just seems like the stronger, more sensible sister. But I do want to know what, like, the root of their kind of animosity is. Can you imagine if 
you hadn't seen Chad or your sister in years, and then you, your sister shows up pregnant with his baby. Oh, my God. Like, oh, my goodness. I could not. That would not be okay. Even if I had, like, come to peace with, like, oh, yeah, my husband should move on. Like, I'm not there. Like, your sister. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Yeah, and I don't care. I mean, I don't know how long it was. 20 years or something? No, not that long, because I forget how old Matthew was. Yeah, but I think it was at least, I feel like it was, like, eight years maybe I don't know actually yeah they like something like that or? yeah because like Joseph was like seven or so I think when he was banished and he's I don't know like 18 now so I mean eight years doesn't seem like a very long time to like come to peace with things and again it would be one thing to be like my husband has moved on it would be another thing to be like my sister is my pregnant sister. with my husband's child yeah. <laughs> if our sisters are listening don't do that thanks <laughs> yeah please um, we also meet Willa, who oh, yeah. helped raise, who raised the triplets, actually. She raised the queens, and she knew that Arsenault was a poisoner, because... She knew, but she wasn't the one, or, but the queen was the one who said to do the switch, or her, the mom, right? Right. So and I'm still I'm like, so curious about how that whole relationship works and what goes on in the Black Cottage. I'm very curious if we'll get more of the, like, tradition or whatever broken down of what the queen does, how long she's there, who knows, and how... I don't know. So, so did she just say, like, oh, she's a poisoner, but I'm going to send her to the naturalist? And did she... I still am unclear if she switched them or if they were both poisoners. Me too. That's my biggest question because Willa says that Camille, who was the queen, she switched the babies because she didn't like how the poisoners were ruling. So even though she was a poisoner, she disagreed with how they were, you know, Which leading. I, I think I might have said at one point, I could see that if she grew up... Like, if the way Catherine grew up, I could see her not wanting to like reward the poisoners because they were just really harsh compared to how Arsenault and um, Mirabella's like families kind of loved them and cared for them in a different way, you know? So I can kind of see that like turning on the family because even though you're one of them. And I think she also said that she somehow saw something in, in Mirabella where she was like, this girl is the one who should be queen. And so she just like, sabotage the other two babies but I don't know what sabotage means like was one a poisoner and one a naturalist and and she switched them or were they both poisoners yeah I don't understand I don't I don't know that still yeah I still have some questions and I want to get flashbacks that would be for the actual core of the story I think more important to understand what the queen knew and did yeah and are there any short stories with this book because I don't think so there are or well there's two novellas but I don't know if I don't know if they're these characters or if they're like historical queens or what oh okay but there are i have like a book with two i don't know 50 to 70 page stories in them okay well hopefully we'll get some answers then yeah (laughs) i mean we also have two books left yeah we're only halfway through although i think i read something or maybe we talked about this i think originally it was supposed to be a two a duology and then it got extended to a quadrology yep and i'm kind of curious at what point because it doesn't really feel like it made sense to end. So I'm curious what was, how far in the, st- like, what the plan was when it was just supposed to be duology versus what changed or got added on or who died as a, or, you know, like, what kind of happened at the end when they decided to make it longer? Or if, when she was writing the second one, she was just like, oh, yeah, this is always going to have to be longer than two books. I was th- wondering that, too, especially because, and we'll get there, but... I thought I thought the end seemed very rushed and very a little disjointed. Like I I had a little bit of trouble understanding certain characters' mm-hmm. actions. So 
I, I had the same question. I was like, it almost felt like she got the green light to write two more books, so she just very hastily rewrote like threw in the some ending. Kind of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I also, I didn't feel like it was a clean enough, it wasn't getting anywhere clean enough to really, well, I guess maybe it could have ended with just the two queens leaving the island and you're like left with this idea that like they find peace in the mainland and Catherine rules, but that would have been pretty unsatisfying too. Yeah, I mean, I think it could have, I think there could have been a way to make it satisfying, Mm -hmm. but yeah, the way it is now, I would have been disappointed with just two books. Yeah. Okay, so sorry. We got to Arsenault in the cottage, and then basically she has a chance. Everyone thinks she's dead. She could finally, in theory, disappear and avoid her fate of dying. But she, Mm -hmm. because her and Mirabella have bonded, she decides that she needs to go help Mirabella become queen. Yeah, and like, what a difficult decision. Because like, she had that moment where she was like, I have to decide if I was spared to become queen or, or to become queen or to become fugitive. Yep. And then she kind of takes a halfway point where she was like, I was spared to help Mirabella become queen and I need to go back to make sure she gets on the throne, which I think it's a very selfless thing to do. Like mm-hmm. she had an easy out. I mean, the only thing she didn't have was Billy though. And I kind of feel like maybe that played into it a little bit mm-hmm. too because... Because he didn't even know her secret, that she could resist poison. And he thought she was dead. Yeah. Like. Legitimately. Mirabella yeah. did too. And, and Mirabella was the one who was like, listen, will you be my king consort? And we'll, we will rule for Arsenault. So I like that both Mirabella and Arsenault made really selfless choices. Mm-hmm. And like were motivated to like keep living for the other sister, which I really liked. But again, I'm still struggling with this. I feel like they both turned on Catherine very solidly and very quickly and yes Catherine is the darkest of the three sisters but we've started to see more about what she went through when she fell into the big hole Russia domain yeah yeah that thing <laughs> and she's not really herself and she's seen like uh, all the dead queens of the past are somehow influencing her or like mm-hmm. exerting their will through her or something creepy is going on and I just I'm a little bit disappointed that Mirabella and Arsenault both, like, remember all being sisters, and they, as far as we know, there have been no memories of, like, Catherine being an evil child, and I sort right. of feel like she, I, I sort of feel like she didn't get a chance to, like, bond with them or come, or, I don't know, I, like, I get it, she's evil, but it's not like they, they were like, hey, we all remember everything. And you were terrible back then, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair point. And again, it's not like Catherine decided one day to wake up and kill her sisters. Like, they were all three raised with this is the expectation. This is, like, literally, like, the religion of the island. Like, we believe that there's this goddess that's requiring this to happen every generation. You know, so it's not like she's, like, yeah, she... She has some evilness to her. I'm not defending her as a good person, but I do feel like they're very unforgiving for something that she's just kind of doing what they were all planning to do originally. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And it's not like they, I mean, they haven't had many chances to come face to face and like calmly talk to her either. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, in this book, the closest they come to talking to her is um, when Mirabella challenges Catherine to the duel. Mm-hmm. Um, what's that? At the Festival of the Reaping Moon. And... I love the scene when she and Mirabella dance together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was like such a creepy scene because they're dancing and like dressed up looking beautiful and Catherine is trying to be so intimidating mm-hmm. and is like saying all this horrible stuff to her and I was just kind of like, you know, this is a chance to like reach out and try and make a connection instead of pushing each other apart and like neither one really wants to give each other a chance. 
Yeah, and I sort of feel like, I don't know, again, I'm Mirabella was the first one to, like, remember the sisters and not want to kill them. Like, Arsenault right. kind of came around once Mirabella helped her realize that there was another way, I guess. But I sort of am also like, Mirabella, you had 10 years or whatever to reach out or find some way to, like, talk to your sister. Like, of course, now that it's the year when you're supposed to kill each other, yes, it's hard to, like, find a time when you guys can just talk or hang out or <laughs> or whatever because you're so worried that everyone's going to try and kill each other. But I don't know. I, I just... I feel like for for someone who went in, like, I don't want to kill anyone, I don't want to kill anyone, I don't know. I was just a little bit disappointed that Catherine... She's, she's picking one sister. Catherine never got a chance to choose the right thing, especially now yeah. that we know, and I get it, she's, like, in a really, really dark place right now, but we also are under the impression that that's not wholly her decision, so I'm curious if we can, like, break her off from the other queens or separate her from what happened. I don't know. I don't know about that, because... She was so changed after she fell into the Brescia domain, and I mean, I think we got a little bit more of a glimpse as to why she was so changed. Like, honestly, my favorite scene of this whole book was when Peter goes back down into that abyss to try and, like, look for answers. Of course, that's your favorite scene. It was the creepiest one. (laughs) With all the ghosts of the dead queen, like, whispering to him. I love that. And, like, he goes because... He sees how changed Catherine is. Like, she tells him to leave, and then she tries to stab him, and she cuts her own face with a knife. Like, she is not herself, and she's so changed. And so I liked that he went down there looking for answers, and now I'm just worried, like, I feel like she's gone too far. I feel like if she wanted to change, she can't because she's no longer Catherine anymore. Well, I think it's definitely buried very very deep and I'm not saying that she definitely can change but I there I feel like there's even these moments where she's talking or explaining things or doing things and it's like her versus the queens right in her mind and so even if they're stronger than she is or she's still figuring out how to exert her like there's still these moments that shine through as Catherine usually involving Peter Mm -hmm. and I just like it would be cool if she somehow does find a way to break through because she was one of my favorite characters in the first book because she was also kind of like this underdog but she wasn't so angry and hateful about it you know she she was a victim yeah you could identify with her a lot more and I don't know I kind of hope that she hasn't just completely gone evil and that there's more to the story than that I kind of hope so too because I feel like well (laughs) okay so you did bring this up next last week he said it would be sad to lose Catherine because she is such a great villain. Mm-hmm. And I was going to say, well, we always have Natalia. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, we don't. we don't anymore. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Although that was, it happened so fast. But there was also something I really loved about how fast it was, that it wasn't this drawn out thing, that it came from this place of anger that Natalia sort of thought herself, you know, like I'm a, the strong poisoner, like I can't be touched and was so kind of cocky about it almost. It was kind of cool to see her brought down by a mainlander but also terrible <laughs> yeah because i mean the whole plan was between what was it natalia and billy's father was mm-hmm. we're gonna make Catherine queen and she's gonna pick billy as her suitor and she picks the creepy weirdo nicholas instead which i'll never understand although he is also dead now <laughs> yeah true but like and so i just liked how yeah you're right like billy's father was like natalia we had a deal you did not live up to your side of the bargain. And yeah, she was this like untouchable poisoner and 
it was shocking though. It was shocking. shocking. In a shocking way, yeah. I definitely, I liked, or not liked, but the fact that she was attacked unexpectedly by someone that she like trusted and didn't think was a threat to her, I thought was kind of a good move. But the fact that she actually died from it was like shocking to me. I was like, wait, she's just gone? Like, Yeah. <laughs> Especially because Billy said he would marry Catherine if, if, if they would spare Arsenault. Like... He was going to go along with it. Yeah, but the issue was Catherine wasn't going along with it. But again, it's not, I mean, I get Billy's dad was mad, but it also seemed like a poor, I don't know. I feel like Billy's dad had some anger control impulse problems too. Oh, totally. I mean. Which is surprising to me a little bit because it seemed like he had laid all this groundwork for like a strategic, thoughtful, political takeover kind of thing. And then he like snapped it in a moment. Yeah. And then who was it? Was it Rio? Yeah. Rio was just like oh no, we're just ending this here. And she just like stabs him. Yeah, <laughs> And I like that too. And she's no, she's no fan of Natalia, but she's like, no, you can't just come into our island and kill our leaders. And right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I really liked that. Okay. So yeah, the next step. So Catherine did pick Nicholas and they did get married and they did go spend the night together. And she has been ingesting so much poison. Oh my god! <laughs> that sleeping with her killed him. How crazy is that? Okay, yes, but did that not remind you of my research um, from the very first? Yes, about the yes. Mm-hmm. About the um, the Vishakanya, the who were like raised. It was yeah. exactly like that. You're right. Yes. <laughs> it made me think of that so much. I wish I had saved that research for that scene. Because that was insane. And I was like, oh, the whole leading up to it, like with Nicholas was like really like being kind of rough with her being like, you're mine now, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. Like really wanted that wedding night. (laughs) He didn't make it through it. He was also another one of those like good villains where I was expecting him to keep causing trouble or different kinds of trouble, especially now that he thought he was king or whatever. Like I was expecting more from him down the road. And so in some ways it was like a really cool twist. And in other ways I was just like, whoa, what? He's gone? Like, (laughs) I know. I kind of wanted to see more of him. Like I, I guess what I really wanted to see was I wanted to see more of him trying to be king and Catherine like beating him down. Yep. And being like, no, you need to learn your place. Like, I'm yeah. queen. Your place is beneath me. Yeah. And like, yeah. I kind of wanted to see that that power play play out more. But here's my question. So we have mm-hmm. had at least three generations of Poisoner Queens so far. Or the past mm-hmm. three, right? right? They all literally don't eat meals without poison in them. Catherine, like, gets sick and, like, vomits up half of the poison she eats. I'm kind of confused how she became so much more, like, how has this not been a problem for generations that they're so poisonous? Like, what is so unique about it's, what Catherine did that makes her so deadly? I it, think it all ties back to her falling into the Brescia domain. I think yeah, but how does that work? Changed her. I know. I'm I so don't know. <laughs> but, like, I think it ties back to that. Because, I mean, otherwise it doesn't make sense because... Or does it have something to do with she can't heal, too? Because you know how poisoners can both poison and heal? So maybe when they're, like, hmm. in a loving relationship, it somehow they can, like, prevent the... Po- I don't know. but Maybe. But it was weird to me a little bit. Because at first I thought it was just because she had been, like, inflicting on herself all this poison. But then I was thinking, literally every generation of poisoners, they, like, turn up their nose at food that is not tainted with poison in every single meal. <laughs> right. I, and that's why I was, like, it has to tie back to her falling yeah, into the weird that magic abyss. which I yeah. saw so many questions about I'm glad that we're getting a little bit more information but I'm not satisfied yet I agree um but I mean I love this implication now that Catherine can never 
carry a mainlander's triplets. Like she, so she can't really be queen if she can't bear these triplets. Yeah. But but then I'm like, Peter's a poisoner. So like, would he die? If, I mean, no, because they've definitely slept together, and it, like he's fine. And he shouldn't be able to die because he can resist poison. And even right. if even if because this has happened before, right? Even if they say that it was fathered by a mainlander, who would know? Who's to know? Exactly. But I, I did like Peter's stance where he was like, you will be queen, but you will be the last. Yeah. And I think, honestly, that's what needs to happen. Like, this whole cycle that they have is clearly really messed up and not working for them. So yeah. I think she should be the last queen. But I just, I, I like Even that. Even though that... I want at least one of them to die in the course of four books where it's framed as them trying to kill each other, I think I would be satisfied if the three somehow make peace with each other and, yes, turn over this tradi- this horrible tradition, somehow yeah. defeat this triplets every generation has to kill each other yada yada whatnot. yeah they need to overthrow that whole yep. tradition <laughs> okay um so then we have the okay. duel so then we have the duel yeah um which i guess technically was before some of the stuff we just talked about but that was kind of the big thing so arsenault ha- so uh mirabella ends up poisoned by billy's dad not to kill her but just to weaken her so that during the duel catherine can more easily kill her and she can't fight back. Arsenault right. is watching from the sidelines. Jules, using her war gift, is supposed to kind of help. They yeah, were planning to stay like, in deflect the... Yeah, the weapons. Yeah. Planning to stay in the darkness, realize that she's poisoned and basically reveal themselves. Mirabella and Arsenault both announce that they're not going to participate in this annual mm. queen-killing thing. Catherine's like, that's fine, I'll still kill you. But instead they're of letting her kill captive. them... Yeah, they're all <laughs> taken captive. Ah. Jules and Joseph as well. And then... I mean, this part shocked me. This part completely shocked me when the council was like, oh, listen, yeah. Mira and Arsene Mira and needs to be executed for treason because they said they won't kill the queens and they're not participating in this ritual. And Luca totally sells Mirabella down the river to like get three seats on the council. Okay. And so she agrees to letting Catherine kill her and then and then be crowned. That shocked me. It was shocking and it was disappointing. But on the other side, she's high priestess in this is like part of the again, like religious culture on this island that every generation has to go so I mean, maybe she did believe I think she already was struggling with the fact that Mirabella might not want to kill her sisters and she was trying to work her way around it, but maybe she did honestly like not see another way through it and figured she'd profit out off of it so it was bad and disappointing but i also sort of think it's not like she was the mom who raised her yes they had a really close relationship but her role on this island and if you assume that she became high priestess because she like really believes in the legend and lore and the you know goddess intention me i sort of was like i mean it's really disappointing and i feel terrible for mirabella to find out that that happened but i also sort of was like I don't know. I don't know. I just felt like Luca was supporting Mirabella the entire time and was really, like, she was her champion. She was gunning for her to become queen, and she had been raising her with the assumption that she would be crowned queen. And so for her to just give up on that dream so quickly was just kind of surprising to me. But it goes back to, was she raising her to be queen because she really thought she'd be a good queen or because she thought that she could profit from it and be on this council? And now that she got the council seats, yeah, was that enough? That's what she but wanted. 
I think I was disappointed that she didn't even go and like tell Mirabella or talk to Mirabella or even yeah. like propose something else, even if she was talked out of it. It well, did seem very easily. Yeah, that's such a cowardly thing to do. Like she knew Mirabella was going to be executed, so she didn't have to make amends. Yeah. Ugh. So then Catherine's crowned with a tattoo, which is weird. Yeah. Didn't like that. I didn't like that. That sounded very uncomfortable. <laughs> I also was like trying to picture it. I feel like. So is it just a line or is it a crown? Is it a crown I, on her whole forehead? I feel I just like was having trouble picturing it. I just assumed it was like a pattern of like a band across her entire head. Okay. Which I mean, that's just like you can't ever take that crown off. Like you you are queen and that's that. It's just very permanent. Yeah. And I guess again to do it before the other two queens are dead, yes. I don't know. I just, like, yeah, I agree. It seemed like a very bold move. <laughs> yeah. And I, oh, man, that scene when she comes and she kills, Ar- quote, unquote, kills Arsenault. Again. And Mira <laughs> actually thinks she's dead. That was, that mm-hmm. was heart-wrenching. I mean, luckily it didn't last long because as soon as Catherine left, Arsenault was like, surprise, I'm a poisoner, not dead. Mm-hmm. But that was, like, a brutal couple of, <laughs> couple of minutes. <laughs> Yeah, that would be hard to watch. I was glad that we weren't on that same journey, that we knew that she would survive the poison. Yes. Yes. But, I agree. But yeah, so then she does survive the poison, and then they use that whole d- d- distraction as a way to escape, and they get Jules and Joseph out. And Amelia, the um, the women the women who have the war gift, mm-hmm. they all come to help Jules, which I thought was kind of interesting. Like, her mother appealed to them and said, like, my, my daughter's one of your own essentially mm-hmm. can you please help and i like that they kind of rose and came to jules's aid and helped them escape yep i have a couple then... questions about the war gift real quick okay i hope i can answer them one i'm i'm still confused because they acted like the war gift has been is it just that there's not very many people with the war gift left because roe has the war gift these i don't know handful of women have the war gift is jules is just extremely strong like i'm kind of confused by it sort of seemed like jules was like really weird that she even had the war gift and that it could do all these things because they hadn't seen it like able to push and move stuff in generations Mm -hmm. but then it also seemed like when they were escaping that the other people were like guiding arrows and deflecting arrows and stuff so i was sort of confused by what was the nature of the war gift in the island as a whole oh i don't know that's a good question because i felt like we were getting two sides of the story one was we were seeing these like strong warriors and then the other was like i don't know and then also my other question jules is cursed yeah because they said amelia said something like jules should have either had a choice or we should have figured out who she belonged with basically if she had both gifts initially Mm -hmm. and Madrigal said, well, she was mine. Like, I gave birth to her or whatever. Mm. But I'm, so, I was also curious, so does that mean, in theory, if an elemental had a kid who was, like, a poisoner, would they ha- would they be sent to the errands? Or, like, how does... I don't, I'm don't. i just kind of confused by how that whole politics works because I just assumed that things ran in families, but I didn't know that if you had a different gift, you should be sent somewhere else. Um. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Anyways, hopefully we'll get more information because we did all escape. We got through the island. We got through the mist. And Joseph had and been injured in the escape. And poor so Joseph. when we realize he's dead, Jules hops in a boat and goes back. <laughs> I know. And like, as soon as Joseph got injured in the attack, I was like, oh, no, here we go. Like, I saw this coming. And this is the part that I didn't like. So... Mm-hmm. Mira and Arsenal leave the island, and I totally get that. They need to get off the island. Yes. They need to get away from Catherine. Yep. Got it. We're good. But then Jules didn't really need to go with them. 
and neither did Joseph, but but I, but Jules was like, no, I always belong by Arsenault's side. Like she always comes first. Well, I think okay, good. But then why, as soon as Joseph was dead, she was like, never mind. Well, now you don't need me, so I'm gonna go back home. And well, I was like, well, she didn't need you to begin with. Like, why does Joseph being dead change anything? Well, I think part of it was for whatever reason they decided the surgeons on the mainland would be a better choice for Joseph than going to healers on the island. Okay. So that was why they were bringing Joseph with them in part. And I felt like if Jules had said, I can't leave Joseph, then that change would have made sense. But to your point, yes. she said, no, Arsenault needs me. I can't. You and Arsenault always yeah. comes first. Yeah. That's what she said. And then it was like, never mind. Also, it just seemed like a really. It was so fast. I, I don't know. I guess I don't know how long this journey on the boat was, but it was like, oh, he's not breathing. See ya. Like, have a conversation or, like, bury his body or I don't even know. People keep coming back from the dead here anyways. But yeah, we didn't get to see her mourn Joseph at all. It was just like, he's dead and I'm leaving. And it, I was kind of curious to see... I guess in some ways I'm glad that Joseph wasn't, like, torn again between Mirabella and... Jules or whatever but I was kind of curious to see now that Mirabella and Jules were kind of relying on each other and they both had a hit like I was kind of curious to see that play out with Joseph there of that like balance of oh I like him but he likes you but we trust each other because we both love Arsenault but I don't know just like all those dynamics which now that he's dead it's like okay who cares yeah I know yeah but yeah and I just don't I mean I'm sure we'll get some of Jules mourning in the next book Mm -hmm. you know we'll probably get a lot of what we missed from this yeah. second book. But this is this is the part where I was like, okay, she definitely had to rewrite this quickly and make room for two more books. Um, and maybe that's just why it feels a little disjointed and like things were happening very quickly and like very drastic things were happening very quickly. Yeah, but to your point, why did Jules even get on the boat in the first place? Or why yeah, did I, she turn <laughs> around so fast? That was the weirdest thing to me, I, I agree. I don't know, but. I don't know. But yeah, what do you think is going to happen in the next book? Well, I think... This one did say, like, the last... Did you have that last page that said, like, they come back or something? Yes. What did it say? So I think Mirabella and Arsenal are going to come back. The Queens of Fineburn will return. But I feel like they're going to come back with some mainland allies. But I guess my question is, why would they come back? Are they coming back? Because I think they're fine with Catherine being queen. So what has what does Catherine have to do or what has to happen on the island that makes them feel like, oh, we need to... Like, I wonder if they're going to find out. I wonder if they're going to go and, like, try and save Catherine from these ghost queens or whatever. Like, if they find out that she's, like, going crazy and they're like, wait, that's our sister and, like, we need oh, to help Oh, that would be nice. I feel like Billy's going to play into it too, right? Because he's still on the island and I think... Does he know his dad died? Probably not. Oh, no, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. So now I think Arsenault is going to want to go back and save him because my guess is Catherine is now going to try and marry Billy. Or is she just going to, like, pretend that she's still married to Nicholas and hope no one finds out he's actually dead? But Billy's with Arsenault. He's on the he's on the mainland? He's on the boat, yeah. Oh, never mind. Scratch that. But to your point, who is she going to marry next? Or are they just going to deny? Are they just going to pretend Peter's still... I mean... Not Peter. What's his name? Nicholas is still alive. I just don't think that can last for very long. Like, someone's going to catch on. Well, okay, here's the other reason I could see the queens coming back. You know how Jules is 
had that prediction that she was gonna like tear the island in two. Yeah. And now that she's back on the island, and if Catherine sees her as a threat, or if the council in general just doesn't trust her because Ooh. she has like if if Jules is in danger, I could see Arsenault and then possibly Mirabella because of Arsenault coming back to try to help Jules. I would love that because then it's kind of like the tables have turned because before Jules yep. was always the one saving Arsenault, so that would be actually really nice, like really poetic. I think. Yep. Well. We'll have to wait and see. Did you have a favorite scene in this book? Oh, man. There were so many cool scenes. I actually, yeah. so there were, like, there were a couple of things at the end that felt a little bit rushed. But in general, I loved the pacing of this book a lot more than the first one. I think the first one needed yeah. to be a little bit slower because of the world building and all of that. But I felt like every time I was like, okay, I can catch my breath, then it would be like, oh, no, here's another thing happening, another twist. But it made sense because of, you know, we were switching between these three viewpoints. So no one felt too rushed because it was just three different queens on their own timelines kind of thing so mm-hmm. and after hearing pierce brown's talk about pacing in different places with different character points of view i just feel like i really appreciated it in this book but i don't know i mean i always love seeing things with their magic so i would maybe still say like the duel or even their escape through the storm i don't know or the ball just i think would have been a cool scene because of all the tension but all the like party aspect of it too i would not want to see the thing you said about the peter going down and the <laughs> creepiness but that's the because that would give me nightmares scene that I picked. which one the duel yeah i think the duel would be cool although it would have been cooler if mirabella's i think mirabella's powers are the coolest to see in some ways mm-hmm. unless you have cool animals around i guess but like shooting poison knives or throwing poison knives isn't like that crazy, Super especially impressive. if someone yeah. can't like it's falling over because they're poisoned. Yeah, <laughs> poor Mirabella. <laughs> oh man, she did not have it easy. Yeah. Did you do any research this week? I did. Okay. So we so Catherine took. Oh, we didn't even talk about this. Catherine took the bear. She didn't kill him. She captured him as part of her like winning over Arsenault <laughs> and I'm the best queen ploy. Mm-hmm. So part of what they're trying to do when they're trying to like save Mirabella and in general escape everything is free the bear right (laughs) which they do free the bear (laughs) so I looked up some of the like wildest zoo animal escapes oh I love this so it wasn't really people freeing the animals it was mostly the animals for whatever reason getting (laughs) out (laughs) but there are some really funny stories so but that was how it's connected to the book in some uh distant way so, first of all, in 1935, there were a bunch of monkeys at the Long Island Zoo. Supposedly, 175 rusus monkeys escaped the zoo in 1935. That's so many monkeys. I know. I just, can you imagine, like, all these monkeys? I'm just, like, imagining them in a line, like, hopping down, like, New In York. New York? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, hailing cabs. I know. pizza. <laughs> so, I, I guess, like, their normal monkey keeper had a board across this moat where they stayed that he had put there when he was working to like clean stuff and they just walked across the board which I'm also confused by how do you like I could see a couple of them doing that but 150 seems like a lot to not know or 175 seems like a lot to not notice Uh, yeah but then so the zoo offered locals a free season pass if they would return the missing monkeys to their home but they still don't think all of them were ever returned oh I'm sure they weren't yeah and then there's some really funny ones. So in 2005, there was an African flamingo in a zoo in Kansas that somehow escaped. I don't know. Uh, I don't really know exactly how it got out, but it was missing for eight years. And then this <laughs> bird watcher spotted the flamingo in on Texas's Gulf Coast, which is 650 miles away. And oh. it had made its way to the ocean and found a partner. <gasps> oh. And 
guess who this partner was an escaped flamingo from the Mexican nature reserve. No. (laughs) And so I guess somehow both the Mexican nature reserve and the Kansas Zoo were contacted and they decided to let the birds live out in peace on the Texas Gulf Coast. I was going to say, I hope they didn't separate them. What a love story to escape But it was just funny. I love that they like both. I know. Just hanging out on the ocean. That's so cute. Then there was this repeat offender at the San Diego Zoo, an orangutan, an orangutan named Ken Allen, who escaped a, a couple different ways, but basically he climbed over the retaining wall, but they weren't sure how he was doing it. So it took them a while. Eventually they had to hire a rock climber to like come and figure out how they were getting out and fix it. They spent $40,000 fixing the rock, oh. so he couldn't get out eventually. But the first time, he just basically enjoyed the zoo and wandered around and, like, looked at the other animals. The second time, he went and found uh, Otis, who was another orangutan he didn't like, and threw rocks at him. (gasps) Oh, poor Otis. And the third time, he found a crowbar, and they think he was trying to help the other orangutans escape, (laughs) but he failed. And eventually, they figured out how to keep him in his facility wow that is so funny you know what's so interesting is that like i don't understand why they want to get out so badly and i know that sounds crazy but when you think about it like they have all their food right there they have all their mates right there like well and we're also like they don't they want for nothing we're personifying them a little bit right it's like oh yeah they were trying to escape but they might have just been oh here's a board i've never been over here i'm curious what's over here and then they like get lost or whatever so i think they were just bored really this is the opposite here's an opposite story so in 2013 at uh, a zoo in india this wild tiger walked in from the forest and tried to get to the uh, female tigers in the zoo. So the Uh zookeepers just let him in, and he uh, spent a few weeks there. He ate and napped and enjoyed the female company, and then (laughs) later escaped and never came back. Whoa. (laughs) But he just, like, had a little vacation in the zoo. I just think, and I love how the zookeepers are just like, well, I guess if you want in, like, here you go. I can't believe they did that, because I I would be worried about the other tigers, like, interacting with a wild one. I know. What you might do to them. Yeah. That's like in, um... In Pittsburgh, in the Pittsburgh Zoo, there was a seal who got out of its enclosure and it jumped in the shark tank. Oh, wow. And it and it escaped. It got out of its enclosure and it jumped in the shark tank. Whoops. And people were... And when I first read the story, I was like, oh my God, this is going to end so badly. But actually, the zookeepers said that they were more concerned for the shark than the seal because... They're aggressive. I don't know. I guess they like knew that the shark wouldn't go after the seal somehow. But they were worried about, like, the seal, like, going after the shark, which doesn't sound right. But I guess that was the main concern. But everyone came out alive, so didn't end poorly. Well, it's, it's just funny how, yeah, different animals react to di- in different environments. So if they're not mm-hmm. natural predators or, pre- you know, whatever. But, yeah. Oh, man. what else? I've, There's some other stories. There was a penguin named 337 in 2012 who scaled a wall and squeezed through a hole at the Tokyo Uh-oh. Sea Life Park. And he spent nearly two months hanging around Tokyo before he was spotted and recovered and was in completely good health and somehow maintained his weight and everything even in the streets of Tokyo oh my god can you imagine just seeing a penguin in Tokyo I know I can't imagine like what like if people are like oh I must be so drunk right now or something you know like (laughs) 
Why is there a penguin doing karaoke? <laughs> wow. Oh my gosh, I love that. But they said, um, I remember like going to a zoo where there were birds and they were like, don't worry about leaving the doors open. Like the birds know they can escape, but they just choose not to because they have food here. So we're not worried about them leaving. Well, a lot of birds too, they clipped their wings. So there actually was this macaw in 2009 who somehow smuggled himself out of his enclosure. His wings were cut, but he got onto Ooh. an RV and made it all the way. Oh, how far did he get? I actually, I guess I don't know where he started, but he like went home with his family and they didn't realize until they got home and then they had to bring him back and stuff. Oh, but like, I love how he couldn't fly, but he like sneaks into an RV. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's great. There were a pair of llamas that escaped in Arizona, actually, and they were in a high speed police chase, I guess. So there's this really funny like helicopter footage of them, <laughs> but a bunch of people like joined I saw in. that. Did you? It was like in yes. 2015. Yep. And eventually they got uh, caught by a local cowboy using a lasso. So like legitimately this like Arizona cowboy lasso. <laughs> them. I don't know if he was on a horse for sure, but I feel like if they're that saying he's amazing. a true cowboy, yeah. What a hero. There was a, a half-grown wolf pup named Virginia in 1979 Ooh. who escaped the Los Angeles Zoo three times before, like the third time they didn't recapture her. So she's made it. She's still out there. Yeah. Oh, she made it to safety, to freedom. <laughs> but it was just so funny to read some of these stories. And they were, I mean, not, nothing about like animal attacks or anything that I read about. And it was... Good. Just, like, some funny stuff about, yeah, like, the tiger who wanted a little vacation or the flamingo who met their partner from Mexico or... The orangutan with the crowbar just killed me. <laughs> like, how terrifying would that be if you, like, were the person on, like, watching the night cameras at the zoo and all of a sudden there's an orangutan with a crowbar, like, outside of his cage? Oh, my God. I also just love how it's, like, progressing. Like, the first time I'm just imagining him yeah. being like, I wonder who else is here. And then the second time being like, oh, there's Otis. He bugs me. He's I'm going like... to go throw rocks. And like... and, like, he was, like, casing the place before he came yeah. back with rocks and a crowbar. There was, I can't remember, I can't see the story right now, but there was one about a lion who escaped for, like, a week or two. And then in the article it was like, as cats are want to do when he got hungry, he came home yeah. <laughs> or something. And it was just, so to your point, yeah, some of them, even the ones who es- escape would rather be there or didn't escape to like get to freedom as much as they just like accidentally ended up somewhere there was a um cobra in 2011 who went missing for six days and became like a a twitter sensation someone started a twitter account for them and they had Mm. over 160,000 twitter followers before they were returned which i also think is funny he became famous what an what an influencer (laughs) I know, right? <laughs> His first Twitter line was, I want to thank those animals from the movie Madagascar. They were a real inspiration. <laughs> I bet. And he was only, he was ultimately found, like I said, like six days later, a few hundred feet from his enclosure, which is oh, also okay. funny. Some of them end up in Texas and some of them end up like right around the corner. <laughs> a few and, feet away. Yeah. Oh my God. That's amazing. I love that. So even if we hadn't rescued Braddock, is that his name? The bear? Mm-hmm. Maybe he would have escaped and made it safely out. I don't know. I, that was my research. So. <laughs> what did you look up? Um, okay, so I thought we were going to get more of Jules's Legion curse mm-hmm. and like why that mattered. And I think we probably still will, but um, I researched curses. Okay. So I know I did this before. I researched cursed objects before. I just remember the one about the fire and the portrait. That's the only one I remember. Oh, yeah. Before. 
Um, okay, so this one, I have two examples of curses that are because of like someone or something like laying a curse on a people and it following them. Okay. Okay, so the first one is in 1525, the Archbishop of Glasgow, his name was Gavin Dunbar. He um, put a curse on the Reaver people. So these were um, people who were pillaging his area and they were stealing sheep and cattle. And the curse was 1,069 words long. And part of it was, I curse their heads and all the hairs on their heads. I curse their face, their brain, their mouth, their nose, their tongue, their teeth. May the thunder and lightning which rained down upon Sodom and Gomorrah rain down upon them. Whoa, leave nothing for a chance. <laughs> right. Pretty harsh curse. So, basically the curse of Gavin slept until 2001, and... On that date, the city council asked a local artist and a descendant of the Raver people to carve 30, 383 words of the curse onto a stone. Why? And good question. <laughs> good question. So they placed the stone between Carlisle Castle and the Tule House Museum, and the curse kind of awoken, I guess, woke up, I guess you would say. <laughs> So, as they put it, complete chaos followed. Oh no. So, So what happened? The area of Carlisle experienced an outbreak of foot and mouth disease. There were floods, fires, people lost their jobs, apparently their soccer team was cursed. Oh man. So, like, a bakery caught fire. There was just, like, a whole ton of stuff that happened that people were tying back to this curse. And so, finally, um, the the there was like a political leader like a general came and he represents the castle ward where the stone sits and he has demanded that it's destroyed or at least removed (laughs) from the city (laughs) um one raver family offered to put the cursed stone in their garden and another man said i want to see the stone smashed to pieces and the whole thing televised (laughs) yeah no kidding so there's you know, people who believe that the stone is the reason for this area's misfortune, and there are people who don't. But the artist himself, Gordon Young, he doesn't buy it. And he said, he said, if I thought my sculpture would have affected one Carlisle United results, I would have smashed it myself <laughs> years ago. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so, sports are serious. Yeah. Yeah. So, is it still there, or did someone eventually destroy it? I think it, I, it doesn't say what happened to the stone, so okay. maybe it's still there. Interesting. Yeah. I am. I do get really superstitious about sports sometimes. Oh, I don't get superstitious about sports, but this next one, I was very superstitious about this. So I know you went to Hawaii on your honeymoon. Yep. Um, have you heard of Pile's curse? I don't know. I don't think so. Okay, so Pile is the goddess of volcanoes in in Hawaii, like mythology, and mm-hmm. she's also the creator of the Hawaiian Islands, according okay. to their belief. And Pile's curse is that anyone who takes rocks or sand or any kind of volcano, you know, dirt or dust mm-hmm. from the Hawaii volcanoes will be cursed with bad luck until the items are returned. I think I have heard something about that before. So what have people said have happened to them if they've taken it? So this is insane. So there's an online service that will accept returned lava rocks. 
and returned the rocks respectfully to Pile, and they'll also give an offering of orchids as an apology. And I visited this site because there are so many tourists who have taken rocks from the um, um, Hawaiian Islands Mm -hmm. and have been visited by misfortune that like so many people were, were returning the lava rocks that they had to set up an actual organization for people oh to goodness. like send their rocks back. And on this website, they have a ton of stories of people who are like profusely apologizing or like listing out every bad thing that happened since they stole these rocks. And some of them are super interesting. So there's one, all right, it goes, I have enclosed the lava rock that I picked up along the road back from Hana Almost five years ago, I have had such a difficult string of bad luck since that time. My family and I have experienced horrible diseases, death, job loss, abuse, financial troubles, and depression since I mistakenly took the rock as a beautiful souvenir of a beautiful place. (laughs) My daughter told me about the lava rock legend and has urged me to send it back. I hope that my luck will change once it's back in its rightful home. I assure you, if I ever have the opportunity to visit Hawaii again, I will never pick up a lava rock again. I I won't even look at them. And there's others that were like, I am now asking Pile for forgiveness. I will never doubt a superstition again. The next time I am advised against doing something, believe me, I will not do it. <laughs> like, so wait, we have to go online and see these stories. I am, like, really curious. And is it only the lava rocks? Or, like, if I have, like, sand in my shoes, am I, did I do something? I think it's lava rocks. I think it's mainly lava okay. rocks. Okay. So I, I couldn't have accidentally cursed myself probably um no but there were people who took rocks accidentally who were cursed and sent them back and they were like i'm so sorry like i realized that my one-year-old had this in his diaper bag you know Mm -hmm. so i think it's like if he touched the rocks at all okay i need to double check that james didn't bring any because we had had some mediumly bad luck recently so yeah (laughs) Um, I was like very um, adamant about that when my family and I went to Hawaii. I was like, do not touch the rocks. Like, do not make sure you didn't bring them home. (laughs) And then I was also like that in um, Iceland because there's like the legend of the Holda folk there, Um, like the Icelandic elves who like do not like you messing with their rocks. And so, like, every time we were hiking and, like, we kicked a stone, I'd be like, oh, my God, the Holder Folk! The Holder Folk! (laughs) Would you go move it back? Yeah. Oh, man. I love it. That's awesome. Uh, Oh, so this is kind of interesting. Have you ever heard of the curse of Macbeth? Like in theater? um, Theaters? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, there's that curse that everyone's heard about where it's, like, you can't say the name Macbeth in a theater or bad things will happen. Mm Mm-hmm. I was researching this a little bit about, like, why they say that this curse causes harm to anyone who utters the name. And I guess it's because there's a legend that Shakespeare stole the spells of real witches for use during the three witches scene in Macbeth. Hmm. And that's kind of, like, where it started started from. Huh. I did not know that part. And the first incident of the curse happened in 1721... Oh, there was, an, there was a case of arson in 1721. In 1847, there, the actors at the Old Vic were injured, and that included Laurence Olivier. Charlton Heston was burned in 1954. In 1964, a fire burned down the Di Maria National Theater in Lisbon, Portugal. There's just, like, all these instances. Are they usually involving fire? I didn't remember that part of it. They say injuries included... Personal injury, fire, theater closure, and even death. Eek. Yeah. So since the first performance in 1606, 
there have been a lot of disasters that occurred in playhouses around the world. So in 1606, an actor died backstage during the opening night of Macbeth. In 1849, um, a riot broke out and several people were killed. In 1934, four different actors played Macbeth in a single week due to illnesses. Oh, man. And in 1953, Charlton Heston's legs were severely burned. His lights had been soaked in kerosene. So if a... So don't mess with Macbeth. Right. So if an actor does speak the name of the play, they have to perform a series of cleansing rituals to ward off the evil... So you have to turn around three times, spit over your shoulder, and recite a line from another one of Shakespeare's plays. And then that'll cancel out the curse? Yes. Okay. And they say um, a lot of them use um, that line from A Midsummer's Night's Dream, where it's like, if we spirits have offended, (laughs) whatever that line is, they (laughs) often use that one. Nice. It's so funny where superstitions come from. Like, I didn't, I had heard the Macbeth thing before, but I didn't hear about the witch, real witches or whatever. And then you also have to think, how did they come up with the what would break the curse? I know. I accidentally turned four times. That didn't work. But next time I'll say Macbeth and turn three times or whatever. It's just funny to think about. Oh, the other lines that you can say are angels and ministers of grace defund us from Hamlet or fair thoughts and happy hours attend you from the Merchant of Venice. Oh, and then you have to knock on the door of the theater and receive permission to enter again. Interesting. Yeah, but it's very, very serious. Um, And there was one... So did you see Hereditary? Mm Mm-mm. So... When they were filming it, I guess Ari Aster was the writer and director of Hereditary and said that during filming, um, they were told not to say the name of William Shakespeare's Scottish play out loud because of the legend. And they did. They said it smugly. And then one of the lights burst during the shooting of the following scene. (laughs) Oh my goodness. You don't want to mess with that stuff. Maybe it's not true, but if it is true, you don't want to risk it. I know. I wouldn't. I have to talk talk to my cousin, who's an actor, to see if they follow any of those guidelines when she's doing shows. And then report back. I will. Or if our listeners are thespians, maybe they can tell us. Yeah. um, And if you want to do that, (laughs) you can write to us at mnktalkya at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at mnktalkya. Whose turn is it for a joke this week? It's your turn. Okay. So one of our fans, Josh sent me this joke this week and I actually again I start to like I can't tell if it's just because I've read the joke like earlier in the week and then I read it now or if we've used it before but whatever why do dads tell dad jokes hmm I don't know because they want to see their kids all grown up oh boy (laughs) (laughs) that was good Uh, so now it really, it's like a um, philosophical dad joke for the, <laughs> why, why do we do this? I don't know. <laughs> but I'm glad we have friends now who are like giving us jokes to specifically tell on the podcast. That's fun. Yes, definitely. I agree. So do we want to talk about the next book in the series, Two Dark Rains? Yes. Cool. It's the third book. The fourth one's not out yet still, so. I know. Getting there. Do you want me to read the cover? Yeah, go for it. Catherine has waited her whole life to take the throne, and with the fury of the dead queens roaring beneath her skin, her time has come. But many still challenge her rule, and with the whereabouts of her sisters unknown, Catherine's anxiety grows. Then bodies mysteriously start washing ashore, throwing Finburn into a panic. Hiding out on the mainland, Arsinoe and Mirabella try to make a life for themselves away from all they've lost. 
but it's not long until home beckons. Arsinoe is haunted by visions of the legendary Blue Queen, a rare and mystical fourth-born queen who died what? hundreds of years earlier. Jules, after befriending a war-gifted girl named Amelia, learns there is a rebel army that wants to usurp the throne and they want Jules to lead the charge. A queen on the throne, two on their way home, and an unexpected renegade who's gone to ground. The crown has been won, but these queens are far from done. Oh, man. <laughs> There's a lot going on. Ended with a rhyme. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That is a I lot. I forgot to read through that before I read it aloud. That was really stressful. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's not your fault. Um, and we said we will read up to The Reaping Moon for next week. Okay. That's roughly halfway through. Oh my goodness. So where are these bodies coming from? I don't know. And the I'm fourth excited. Queen? I know. I'm excited to hear more of the legends of previous queenliness. Me too. So that'll be cool. Ooh, I can't wait. Okay, time to get reading? Yes. Let's do it. Bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.